You are listening to ReachMD, XM157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Michael Benson, a clinical assistant professor of obstetrics and gynecology at Northwestern University. Our guest today is Dr. Jay Imes, who is a nationally recognized expert on preterm labor. He is a Frederick Zussman Professor of Obstetrics and Gynecology and Vice Chair of the Department at Ohio State University College of Medicine and Public Health. With hundreds of publications in the medical literature, he is a member of the Steering Committee for the Maternal-Fetal Medicine Network of the National Institute of Child Health and Human Development. Welcome, Dr. Imes. Thank you. Okay, we're talking about controversies, and for the past 20 years, there's been this service available where you can get in-home monitoring for people who are having problems with contractions or have had history of preterm birth. What is the value of at-home contraction monitoring? Essentially none. It's been a, a technology that does what it's advertised to do in the sense that it does record contractions, but it is based on a theory of the onset and development of preterm labor that has been discredited by the research of the last uh, 20 years. Two kinds of research, uh, some of it done to see whether the use of a monitor uh, to detect contractions accompanied by a nurse to interpret that for the patient and guide her to the right treatment at the right time uh, has been randomized to receive that or to receive uh, none of that. Many trials were done, one of them here at Ohio State, but the largest one was done in California and involved more than 2,400 women about 800 with twins and the rest with risk factors, and they found no benefit whatever in the women who received the monitoring technique. As I said, it's a technology that's that's based on a faulty theory, and we've learned about that faulty theory through the observation that uterine activity in pregnancy is fairly frequent. It can rise to the level of what some people would call abnormal, even in women who are destined to deliver a term. And the overlap between women who are going to deliver early and the uterine activity they have versus the many women who are normal who have a high level of background activity is so great, that overlap is so great, that the technique really can't distinguish the woman destined for preterm labor or not. A lot of people still believe in it because they believe in that theory of contraction suppression. And so when it, quote, works, they believe that they've been successful. But the benchmark of therapy is should be research, and the research doesn't show uh, any evidence of benefit. And even more important, this technique and this approach have not fulfilled what you could call the pap smear effect. When the pap smear was introduced, it eventually led to a reduction in deaths from cervical cancer, or the Group B strep strategy announced by the CDC a few years back it has led to a reduction in deaths from group B strep. No such benefit has been demonstrated for this approach to preterm labor. So it's time to move on to something else. I think that demonstrates a very important uh, take-home message that common sense uh, without the support of direct evidence shouldn't really guide our treatments in medicine. And certainly this is an example of how common sense, that is, frequent contractions will eventually lead to delivery, certainly makes a very rational argument, uh, but uh, empirically, it just hasn't proven to be uh, valid. That's right. How has the age of viability changed over the past two decades? That is, 
what are those ages where the baby is really considered viable and what are the gestational ages where the baby is not considered viable if there is such a true boundary? Well, if there is a boundary, it's down around 22 to 23 weeks now. Uh, and I, when I started, it was uh, not uncommon for a baby at 27 or 28 weeks to be allowed to pass away peacefully in the corner of the delivery room or in uh, his or her mother's arms. And, of course, that boundary faded a long time ago. When the initial data about 23- and 24-week babies surviving came out 10-plus years ago, most people just didn't want to believe it. They couldn't imagine that babies that small could survive. And, of course, they, they don't often survive, and they don't do that well when they do survive. But we are now confronted with well-dated pregnancies, uh, 450, 500, 550 gram babies who do survive and sometimes are okay. So that's uh, an advance. That's uh, important. But it, of course, those successes drive a whole series of hopeful decisions by many, many women and their their families, and doctors and nurses too. That maybe will be part of another great success. And of course, most of the time, that's not the case. Well, actually, that's uh, certainly the next question. For the extremely premature baby, uh, the baby is on the threshold of viability or just beyond, just has passed the threshold of viability. What happens to the survivors? Tell us a little bit about uh, the chances of a normal life and tell us something about the morbidities experienced by the survivors who don't have a normal life. The rules of thumb that I've tried to to live by are, are uh, pretty easy to remember. They're not necessarily exactly accurate, but uh, down to the last uh, decimal point, but they're pretty close. And that is that the, the same percentage of babies who survive, uh, that same percentage will survive okay. So if you were to take, say, a 25-week baby, uh, without any unusual complications, not a twin or no obvious sepsis or things of that nature, delivered in reasonably good condition. Most studies would give that baby about a 60% chance at survival. Uh, survival has to be carefully defined. Does that mean uh, survival to childhood or to age three? No, it means survival to discharge from the hospital, and we know that many of these kids don't make their first birthday. But say 60% for the 25-weeker to discharge from the hospital. That would translate into 6 times 6, or about a 36% chance that the child would have a chance at a reasonably normal life with morbidities that you and I would might consider severe but would, would not be labeled as severe because they would not include the, the standard cerebral palsy, chronic lung disease, blindness, and, and deafness. What kind of morbidities are you talking about that would be significant but wouldn't meet the criteria of severe? What are you talking right. about? Well, it would be hearing and, and visual impairment without being blind. It would be morbidities such as, as uh, learning disabilities, poor school performance, difficulty with um, uh, a mild degree of, of uh, physical handicap or chronic lung, but not enough to, to merit calling them severe. One of the interesting series of papers I ran across in preparing a chapter a few years back was a series of, of research studies done, I'm trying to remember the author, but it done, done in uh, 
Canada about the self-perception of these extremely small infants, less than 750 grams, when they reached adolescence, because we now have some adolescent survivors. And these kids had morbidities that you and I would think would be just terrible to live with. And they, um, they think they have a pretty good life, which just surprised the daylights out of me. So I've learned to be uh, non-directive in my counseling, to be uh, uh, to tell stories on both sides of the issue and let families see what some of the grim stories are, the, the uh, tremendous expense, the never coming home from the hospital, broken marriages, broken families, having other children neglected because of the child who's, who's consuming the mother's uh, time. And then the the occasional uh, very successful one, uh, and try to to be descriptive at the extremes and let families find their right interpretation of that rather than talking about numbers. If you have just joined us, you are listening to Reach MD XM one fifty seven, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Michael Benson, and my guest is Dr. Jay Imes a nationally recognized expert on premature birth. Today we are discussing the epidemic of premature birth, controversies, and research efforts. Well, where is the research emphasis now in terms of reducing prematurity and even its morbidity for newborns? Well, the two major areas of research, I think, are in in identifying the woman at risk of preterm birth and trying to reduce her risk, and that basically is the progesterone effort uh, we know that, that women have benefited uh, with a history of a previous preterm birth, but there obviously are many women who don't have that history, so we're trying to find an efficient way to find them and to apply this uh, therapy to the right population. The other area of research is about the care of the extremely low birth weight infant, both before delivery and afterwards. One of the Current topics of great interest is surrounds the use of magnesium sulfate, the drug that we've known in obstetrics as treatment for preeclampsia and more recently as a potential tocolytic. We know it isn't a very good tocolytic. Uh, it probably isn't as unsafe as some people claim it is for the baby, but it can be unsafe for the mother. But it may also be helpful for the baby if given in the right time and the right dose. There are several large studies, uh, one that's been reported already from Australia, another one will soon be reported from our research network that you mentioned, the NICHD MFM network, where magnesium was given to the mother to treat the baby just before delivery, almost like steroids only in the matter of a few hours just before delivery. That treatment was proposed because of observational studies suggesting that if a baby was born to a mother who received magnesium, either for preeclampsia or preterm labor tocolysis, that baby did better than a baby of similar age and weight who did not receive magnesium. How did they do better? How did they the did better that? in their rates of cerebral palsy and in their rates of intraventricular hemorrhage. So based on those observational studies, prospective randomized trials have been conducted. And the one in Australia showed modest benefit, not as profound as you might have hoped, but no great risk. The one from the United States, as I said, has just recently finished following these babies out to age three, four or five years of age, and performing extensive neurologic exams. And those results will be presented uh, at the meeting of the Society for Maternal Fetal Medicine in uh, 
uh, February of 2008. What's the theory behind how magnesium would reduce cerebral palsy and intraventricular hemorrhage? Good question. I think the probably the best answer I can give you is uh, membrane stabilization and reduced risk of intraventricular hemorrhage. But I'm not much of a biochemist. I want to thank Dr. Jay Imes, who has been our guest. We have been discussing the epidemic of preterm birth and the controversies and research efforts looking into this. I'm your host, Dr. Michael Benson. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. We would really like to hear from you. For comments and questions about this program or suggestions for other shows, send your email to xm at reachmd.com. Please visit us at reachmd.com. Our new on-demand and podcast features will allow you to access our entire program library. Be safe. Be informed. Thank you for listening.